Last Sunday, nine bombers walked into Christian churches in Sri Lanka and blew themselves up, taking with them over 350 people, including 45 children, who were there to worship on Easter morning. As we were getting up in the morning and figuring out what to wear to church on this holiest of our church calendar days, Sri Lankan family members were wailing as their community helped them pick through the rubble looking for survivors of the three churches and the three hotels where the bombings occurred. Last year, Christian churches in Sudan were destroyed as shocked churchgoers watched their own government bulldoze their houses of worship, destroying their Bibles and ransacking their buildings for the sheer purpose, the sheer fact that they were Christian. Over the last several years in the tiny country of Eritrea, which is located next door to Sudan, Protestant and Pentecostal churches who don't conform to that country's approved list of denominations have been rounded up and imprisoned in shipping containers used as makeshift jails, often deprived of water and food and basic care. In Asia, it's estimated that one-third of Christians experience extreme levels of persecution in their daily lives. And according to one watch list, the top worst countries for Christian persecution in 2019 are North Korea, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Nigeria, where simply being Christian is illegal and can result in imprisonment, torture, loss of property, and death. Now, there may be some of you hearing these examples today saying to yourselves, yes, but Sharla, you're forgetting the fact that Christians have also persecuted plenty of other people and other religions over the years, and I'm glad you're thinking that. I've not forgotten it. I don't want you to forget. I don't want any of us to forget that there have been so-called Christians throughout history who have spilled an awful lot of blood in the name of holy conversion. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, but he didn't say at all costs. So it's true, there are some Christians throughout history who have indeed remembered Jesus' words in Matthew 28, go make disciples of all nations, but they totally forgot about Matthew 22, where Jesus said, love your neighbor, and of John 15, where Jesus said, love each other as I have loved you. So for centuries, extremists of all different faiths have been persecuting each other. Christians persecuted Muslims, Radical Islamists now persecute Christians. There are violent Hindus currently intent on purging India of Christianity. And there even exists a militant Buddhism, which is on the rise in Southeast Asian countries. Now, in light of yesterday's shootings in yet another house of worship, the synagogue in the San Diego area, I think it's fair to say that all faith is under attack. And while most of the examples that I've given are 
more akin to sort of a fanatic nationalism and a racism than any kind of spiritual journey. This persecution by the extremists are not people who are seeking ways to live a humble, joy-filled, transformed life. Anytime religion and politics get too cozy to the point of extreme nationalism, the actions of religious leaders scarcely resemble the one whom they follow, which is probably why Gandhi once famously said, I like your Christ, but your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Ouch. It seems that whenever fanatics reign, those who do resemble Christ pay the price. And I want to take you back to those years immediately following the death of Jesus. The apostles had witnessed the greatest miracle the world would ever know, the resurrection of Jesus. These men and women had toiled alongside Jesus. They lived with him. They observed how he interacted with the lowest of low, as well as the highest in power. They were witness to his ministry, witnesses to his death, witnesses to his resurrection, and the acts and behaviors of the resurrected Christ. They had stories to tell, and they were not about to be silenced. This was the first century, and at that time, the high priests, the top religious leaders, those in power, were part of a council called the Sanhedrin. It was a sort of supreme court, if you will, and it really functioned more as a political body than a religious one, even though it was seated by those in religious authority. And the religious and the political were so intertwined in this council that it would have been hard to know where one ended and the other began. So when the disciples were teaching about Jesus and about what it meant to be a follower of Jesus, and they were doing so in the very public square in Jerusalem, it became obvious to anyone watching that they were amassing a large following. And the Sanhedrin, this council of powerful leaders, were threatened. The apostles, led by Peter and John, were told basically to cease and desist, stop teaching. The high priests had them thrown in jail because scripture tells us they were jealous. That jealousy and greed, it gets us every time. But the next morning, after having thrown the apostles in a jail cell, the full assembly of the council, which would have been about 21 men, showed up to the jail and they found it exactly as they had left it, securely locked with guards still standing right in front of it. Except there was no one there. There was no one in the jail cell. You see, in the middle of the night, an angel of the Lord had unlocked the door and told the apostles to go into the temple, into the temple courts, and tell people about this message of life. Now, Peter and the apostles had made themselves abundantly clear. They always said, we follow God, not human authority. And so they did exactly as the angel of God told them to do. 
and they picked up right where they had left off, teaching anyone who would listen about the goodness of God. And this council of high priests were furious. They said, we gave you strict orders to stop teaching in this man's name. Stop teaching in the name of Jesus, yet you continue to do it. They were enraged. They wanted to kill the apostles on the spot. Now, Peter tries to reason with them. He says, look, we are witnesses to all of these things that have occurred. Our God, he tells them, our God, yours and mine, he says to the religious leaders. Our God raised up his son to be exalted. You nailed him to a cross, but we know he's the one. We know it, and we cannot keep quiet. We just can't, Peter said. But the council of high priests, this local law enforcement, are kind of like the Keystone Cops. You remember them, sort of hilariously incompetent, running around blustering and trying to be commanding. They just can't believe that the apostles are at it again. They are angry. They're threatened. They're scared. And what is it that they are so threatened and afraid of? Well, let's listen in a little bit, because the book of Acts gives us plenty of clues. This is what the apostles taught that the priests were so afraid of. This. People can be healed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Followers of Jesus should love and care for one another so that no one is in need. They should share all they have with one another. The apostles taught that Jesus died, was buried, and on the third day rose again. They taught that the resurrected Jesus walked among them for 40 days, preaching and healing and loving people. They taught that Jesus forgives sins, that repentance and turning back to God brings new life. They proclaimed the good news. They proclaimed the power of love. Being a follower of Jesus isn't about how much you know or how long you pray or how loud you sing. It's about how you love. People will see how you love. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples, Jesus said. If we had stuck with that, I have to think that Gandhi might have had a very different impression of us Jesus followers. But it also turns out that love can be very threatening to people, especially to people in power. And love, it turns out, is what the religious authorities were so afraid of. They were blind to love, if you think about it. They saw the disciples teaching about Jesus and what it meant to be a follower, and they could feel and see the power of that. It elicited thousands of followers wherever they went. In a very short period of time, thousands of people wanted to know more, wanted to be part of this thing. And when you get that many people together in one place, and they're all calling on the name of this guy who said he was ushering in a new kind of kingdom, well, that, they figured, poses a threat to society. And in fact, it was a threat, 
but just not the one they imagined. So let's just dream together for a moment. Let's dream for a moment that love won. What if it had overcome the ruling power of the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago? What if love was still winning today? It's quite possible, I think, that we would have never seen things like the Inquisition or the French Revolution or the American Civil War. There might have been no slavery, no world wars, no need for civil rights, no 9-11. Perhaps there would be no hate crimes, no racism, no exclusion. There might be humanitarian efforts that everybody could support. There might be disproportionately high numbers of healthy minds and healthy bodies and great parenting and, and nourishing relationships. There might be disproportionately high numbers of ethical businesses and strong communities, moral abundance instead of moral bankruptcy. I mean, can you just imagine what a world would look like if we would just let love win? It threatens to change the world. But we look back throughout the history of the world and we see the same stories unfolding again and again like a hamster on a wheel because again and again love gets crucified but nevertheless we persist we keep trying don't we we reform and refine our christian institutions as our collective consciousness evolves, so do our churches. We breathe new life into old ways of worshiping so that whole new generations will get to know Jesus. We confront difficult issues in the church because we have to. And we ask, what would Jesus want us to do? What does love require of us? 2,000 years later, we stand in the temple courts of our daily lives, and we deliver the same message of hope to a hurting world. As the angel told Peter, go and tell the people about this message of life, this life-giving message. We're still at it. We can't not be. It's a kind of civil disobedience, and it's also our Christian duty. When the council of high priests were so enraged by the apostles and their growing band of Jesus followers, one man stood up. He was a fellow priest, a Pharisee by the name of Gamaliel. And he said to the assembly as they gathered to determine the fate of the apostles, he said, consider carefully what you're about to do. And he reminded them that several people had already claimed to be the Messiah and had tried to start a movement, but for one reason or another, both the leader and the movement died. They never amassed more than a few hundred people, and the movement died. So Gamaliel says to them, if this Jesus movement is of simple human origin, it won't amount to much. You don't even need to worry about it. It will likely die out just like the others did. 
But, he cautions, if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow it. My friends, we get so much wrong in our journey of faith. We fight, we misinterpret, we judge others, we condemn. We are hardly unified at times. But we will not be overthrown. We will praise God with trumpet and sound, with lute and harp. We will praise God with tambourine and dance, with strings and pipe. We will praise God in the sanctuary. We will act and serve in love. We will be witnesses to what happened 2,000 years ago when love was crucified and love rose again. We will not stop trying. And if it seems odd to those on the outside, if people doubt or they think we're a little crazy or a little soft in the head or too soft in the heart, well then so be it. Because the truth of God's love embodied in our lives should look and act and sound peculiar. Some people don't recognize the sound of that clashing cymbal because that's the sound of love. You know, I pray to God that none of us ever experience the kind of persecution that so many have and continue to experience in the name of Jesus. But when you are feeling weak, when you're filled with doubts, or when it seems like the power of love will never overcome the love of power, remember that all you need, all that you need, you have in order to continue to persist. Your strength comes from the one who overcame darkness from the one who broke through the power of death and breaks through all of our enemies, including the enemies of sickness and oppression and loneliness and grief and, yes, persecution. God will never desert God's witnesses, the advocates. There is no prison so dark, no locks so strong, that God can't visit you there and if God so chooses, send an angel to bust you out of it. In the Gospel of John, Jesus said to his disciples, anyone who loves me will keep my word, and God will love you, and we shall come to you and make a home in you. Jesus has moved in. Jesus is in the house. I want you to know that and feel that deep in your bones because the good news is that it will transform you and draw you into union with God and through that union you will find the peace and true healing and complete joy love will abound in you it's been 2,000 years since the Jesus movement began and it will not be overthrown. Amen? Amen. Amen.